My name is Katrina Irwin, and welcome to House on Fire. I'm a lifelong Miamian, and I am so excited for you all to welcome my new co-host and lifelong Floridian, Glennis Navarrete. Welcome to the best of House on Fire episode. You guys are tuning in to the greatest hits we've had so far on this podcast. Don't you think it's a little too early for a greatest hits episode? Not really. I mean, we've had so many amazing guests and conversations already. So like our first segment. I love this interview. We talked to Hilla the Killer about how she got into the eco-raffing game. <laughs> From her humble beginnings as her dressing up well as a piece of poop. <laughs> and then she ended up making her own Planet Earth costume and her music video from Times Squares that went viral. Such an amazing story. But let's go ahead and let Hilla tell it. So kind of what I mentioned before, like a huge part of the work that you do is you dress up as the planet. Actually, before I even like knew too much about your work, since Glennis and I do a lot of like eco work, our friends used to send us videos of you and they would be like this you. Oh, yeah. Oh my my fiance yes. sends me all your videos and he was like, look, oh, my God, look what she's doing. And I'm like, yes, sis, go <laughs> off. I love it. And it's super entertaining and obviously like captures a lot of people's attention. So I kind of want to hear about like how you even got started on this idea. What made you decide to get dressed up as Mother Earth and rap? And what was your big debut and how did that look like? Sure. So I've actually been performing as an eco rapper for many years alongside one of my music collaborators, Nathan, Nathanology, Nathan mm -hmm. Dufour. And so we go, we have a group called Nate and Hilla, and there's a lot of eco rap songs associated with our group, um, specifically the compost anthem, which is, you know, a really big, amazing song, like a New York City compost anthem. Mm -hmm. um, but we were dressing up as like poops and seahorses <laughs> and... Uh, what else do we have? We have lots of different costumes for different occasions. We were trees. We, so, you know, dressing up as these um, ecological symbols has just been kind of part of the repertoire for many years. And mm -hmm. we did a show at Caveat, which is a science uh, entertainment venue in, in the Lower East Side in New York City. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a show called Eco Trippin'. And we wanted to introduce the concept of Earth as a rapper. Mm -hmm. So we had a song that was like, if Mother Earth could rap, you know, what would she say? Mm -hmm. And so we were like, okay, so somebody needs to be the Earth. Who's going to be the Earth? And Nate was just like, I think it should be you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, you know, I think so too. I think I should be the Earth. And so we kind of just conceived of the costume and put it together. And then we did it. And it was, it was great. And that wasn't like even the really big debut as of me as the earth. I mean, it was, but it wasn't, it, it didn't like make such a huge splash as like when I went out um, alone uh, to Times Square, for example, and did Wet Ass Planet. Um, mm -hmm. That was kind of like my first, first viral video. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really landed for me where I was like, oh, I should really just be performing as the earth. I should make the earth like this huge persona. And um, yeah, that's kind of been taken off for about a year. That's so cool. So when you did Wet Ass Planet in Times Square, did you do it for a strike or did you just decide to show up in the middle of Times Square one day and like hang out with like Elmo and the gorillas and everything? <laughs> yeah, I um, I just went there. I was actually visiting um, this zero waste uh, store pop up at Bryant Park. 
mm-hmm. uh, called Ecosphere, and they were just like had a little pop up store. And so I was showing up to like perform there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I did a little performance at Bryant Park. And then I was like, hey, uh, to ask the, you know, my friend Arisa if she wanted to come with me to Times Square to do a little performance. And then we just kind of went there and did it. And it was really funny because my speaker just wasn't working at all. Uh-huh. And I was having all these issues. And But like seeing me deal with the speaker and, and how it wasn't working, I kept starting and stopping. And, you know, during this time, a crowd had a, accumulated to see what was going to happen. And then I finally got it to work. And I got it to work for one song for Wet Ass Planet. <laughs> and... And then it just started pouring, like immediately after oh I God. finished, it started the raining. It was so wet for you. She loved it. <laughs> oh my God. So like, yeah, it was so funny. So everyone dispersed and I like covered up my speaker and ran out of there. Um, but that was a really magical moment because um, that woman came and danced with me in that video. We got like a beautiful <laughs> eight second clip of that experience. And yeah, it went viral and it was, it was really cool. So dramatic. You can just picture Hilda the Killer in Times Square singing Wet Ass Planet. And it just starts pouring rain. (laughs) The climate really ends up with a starring role in her viral video. And our next guest also comes from the world of climate awareness media. Here's podcaster, influencer, and journalist Eli Rallo talking about her book and the importance of women in climate activism. But first, it starts off with some words of wisdom from our Clio founder, Caroline Lewis. So here goes. Enjoy. I'm a science teacher and a high school principal by trade. And and founding the Clio Institute in 2010, my goal was really to educate everybody from K to gray on the data Mm -hmm. and the urgency of the situation. So we, we break down the science, we explain the impacts are diverse, and then we present solutions. So we want you to know that the climate crisis is a life changer and the people least responsible for causing the crisis are the ones feeling the impacts the most. So when I hear you talking about Planned Parenthood and access to abortion, it freaks me out that anybody would be against Planned Parenthood. What do you want? Unplanned Parenthood? It just it just seems to fly in the face of, of, of reality. And when we study the solutions to the climate crisis, we, we draw heavily on a book called Project Drawdown mm-hmm. that sort of highlights, based on research and data points, the top 100 ways that we could draw down the greenhouse gases and reverse the climate crisis. And in the top 10 is educating women and girls. So the whole idea that women are the future and will change it is really coming to bear. And the fact that our country wants to be regressive in how we approach women's health issues and our ability to determine our own future freaks me out beyond belief. Because I'll tell you yeah. something, Eli, the greenhouse gases. So, so because I'm a teacher, allow me to do this. If all of the energy that enters the earth stays on earth, we would heat up and we'd become a little sun. So we have to always picture that energy comes into the planet and energy exits the planet. Now, all the energy doesn't exit because if all the energy exited, we'd be a frozen planet. So earth is unique. We have a planet with an atmosphere that allows energy to come in and allows most of it to go out. But the atmosphere with the greenhouse gases have trapped some of that outgoing heat and allowed us to have life on the planet as we know it. 
what has happened in the last 200 years is we human beings have changed the atmosphere's composition so much that that outgoing heat is being trapped at a higher and higher level. Enough of that heat is not getting out. So the planet is warming up tremendously fast. And we are concerned that people think we can adapt to this problem without fixing the problem. So we are really hell-bent on convincing everybody that stopping the use of oil, coal, and gas, educating women and girls, reducing food waste, these are the things we have to do and support globally, nationally, and locally in order to turn this crisis into something like an opportunity for ingenuity to be unleashed. Yeah. It's it's really crazy to me that this is probably like the number one crisis that we need to face head on because we are running out of time and people sort of think on an individual level, well, how does it affect me? Like it's not going to affect me. And it's like, it affects all of us. It affects some people at a much higher level than others. And like, it's happening before our own eyes. Mm-hmm. So like the proof is there. And, and And you live in New York. You're still living there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So New York is also like a very hugely climate like impacted city. Are you seeing any issues in New York right now? Not. I think like in New Jersey, where I grew up, mm-hmm. I saw a lot of it firsthand in the hurricane seasons that we had. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when I was in high school, it was when Hurricane Sandy happened. So obviously that impacted New York as well. We were off school for a month. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if people know that these severe weather crises have any, like how much impact they have, like how important they are for us to look at as, you know, a part of this emergency for lack of a better term. Um, But also the extreme weather that we get here is really, really frankly unnerving. And I think people just make jokes about how it goes from hot to freezing and people don't really want to address the fact that it's actually much more frightening than that it just the weather switches mm-hmm. it really is and and i do think that a climate 101 just the basics of the science and the scope of the impact because down here in in florida as you can imagine all people want to talk about all day long is sea level rise and how we can raise the roads and build better seawalls but it's much more than just sea level rise it's the salt water intruding it's the food crops not being as strong as they used to be. It's about freshwater vulnerability. It's about health. It think about allergy seasons never ending and asthma cases. And you know it's not the white privileged people that are getting these extra things to deal with. It's those without mm-hmm. health care and those without access to yeah. nutri- nutritious food. And heat, think about outdoor workers. We have recommendations that employers of outdoor workers give hydration breaks, but they're recommendations. When you have a profit-driven employer, you know how that goes. Can I tell you something that's gonna get you so mad about the state of Florida? So with what Caroline is talking about with outdoor workers, so in the Florida State Legislature, there was actually a bill that passed that allowed people in sporting events to be protected when it's too hot out. So a sporting event will be canceled. Um, Easy pass. The same similar bill tried to get passed to give outdoor worker rights and it has yet to be passed in the Florida State Legislature. That is so screwed up. It's just, I think people don't realize also how how important it is to like 
check and pay attention to your labels and also call out these big businesses and also vote. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. the, the truth is, like, there are so many things we can be doing on an individual level, but, like, our voices and our individual efforts can only count for so much vote. Like, we need politicians to declare this a national emergency. We yes. need people to see it as, we need to go into, like, crisis mode, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And we need, and we need these businesses to be in check. We need this legis- legislature like that to pass, like, mm-hmm. because it protects people. Mm-hmm. And also, furthermore, then this politicians can actually get things done. Mm-hmm. Amen, sister. Amen, sister. I feel like I can never say that as well as Caroline can, but I'm going to try my best. Oh, my gosh. Preach. And speaking of bold women, this next segment features the youngest speaker at the COP21 conference, Selena Lam. I followed her on Instagram after this, and I asked to be besties with her and it's been incredible. So she's from the Marshall Islands, and when she was only 24, she spoke at the conference. So she's actually 24, 25 now, and she spoke at the conference when she was in high school, which was so incredible. Since then, she's continued her advocacy through spoken word poetry and by traveling the world with her music and art collective, Small Island Big Song. Yeah, we had a great back and forth with Selena about the COP21 conference, you know, combating sea level rise with indigenous practices in the Marshall Islands and the failures of the Paris Accord. Take a listen. So even what you're saying right now, it kind of reminds me about the speech that you gave at COP21, how you were using this incredible storytelling component about how, was it your grandfather? Yes, it was my grandfather. Yeah, it was your grandfather warning you about the impending doom of the climate crisis, such as the rising seas. And then in your lifetime, just as he predicted that it would be happening, you started to see Mm -hmm. it happen right before your very eyes. And that's what kind of scares me the most about our generation. I just turned 25. So you and I were were both born in the year 1997. And we are... (laughs) Truly just seeing the world change right before our eyes, which I feel is just so different from how mm-hmm. other older generations are experiencing the climate crisis. Exactly. So, but I think within um, the generation of my grandparents and my even my parents, too, a lot has changed within because I think it, it also depends on where you're coming from in our, our country and where it's stationed, where it's at. It's so volatile. Mm-hmm. And so the small changes that that is happening is noticeable because our people really still live that old um, sustainable lifestyle where we are very much interconnected with our nature and that my grandparents grew up with that. And so every change that happens, they notice it. You know, I never even thought about that before, especially if you live in an island nation that is so close and being a part of nature is so entwined in your culture, just as you're saying mm-hmm. that small difference, mm-hmm. you could see that small difference in sea level rise, you could see right before your eyes. And mm-hmm. are you guys doing any sort of adaptation materials in the Marshall Islands? Yeah, before it was, um, our country was really focusing on mitigation. Which is so, what I wish so, we were all focusing on, but we have no exactly. choice anymore. It's so mm, upsetting. Exactly. Exactly. So we were building seawalls. And even I remember um, our workers making walls that were like seawalls, but made out of sand. But then that wouldn't work because Mm -hmm. then the waves would come again and crash it. And so we would just have to wait till the the waves were completely calm and it wasn't king tide season anymore to build the more uh, stronger seawalls made out of cement and rocks. But even then, um, that would also have an effect on the other parts of the island because you really need to assess how to make the seawalls 
and how that would affect then the currents, the change, the patterns of the currents and how that mm-hmm. would affect the other parts of the island. And so mm-hmm. now the focus is really on adaptation and trying to implement uh, and incorporate in, uh, indigenous knowledge and practices into yes. the the um, the solutions that we are focusing on now. And so mm-hmm. what I've heard from my climate warrior colleagues back home is that we're focusing or trying to see um, ways of raising and expanding the lands that we have. But and that is really would be a big task because we don't have all the resources nor the capacity or the financial support for it. And so um, that's a hefty task that is being put on us right now. And this is probably so upsetting for you because you were at the UN at COP21 when the Paris Accord was signed and we really thought this is when change was going to happen. This is Mm -hmm. the time that we're really going to focus on mitigation and our future can possibly be saved. But obviously Mm -hmm. that is currently not the case. And when you were just telling that story, I just want to deeply apologize that that is happening right now because that is horrible. Mm -hmm. That not only Mm -hmm. the United States isn't filling up their part of the Paris Accord, but so many countries are not working together to do it. That countries Mm -hmm. such as the Marshall Islands are currently being lost. So I guess what my big question from you is, what was your big takeaway from being at COP21? A lot of it really was just anger. Mm -hmm. That was was the emotion. Because I really went in and I was thinking, okay, this is it. This is the moment that we have to deliver this statement and we're all going to get it together and do something. And I go into the negotiation spaces and I hear lots of discussions about finance and who's going to finance this, who's going to finance that. Both the bigger countries, the developed and more powerful countries didn't want to have the responsibility of, you know, financing these situations. And it just really angered me because I was thinking, oh, like that was a big slap of reality for me that this is what matters to these nations and these these people it's money and yep. it just i just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that money triumphed over humanity and lives money triumphing over humanity just one of the many issues that climate activists face on a daily basis and it gets me mad to my very core because i truly believe that if it wasn't for money the solutions to the climate crisis would have been implemented by now So sad, but true. But you know, there are rays of hope. We found some in our second episode way back in June of 2020. Here's Miami-based climate activist Sammy Gazda and Isra Hersey, the co-founder of Youth Climate Strike, talking about their most memorable moments as activists. What's the most memorable moment you both have had from your work so far? So for sure, the day that always stays so clear in my mind was our September 20th strike. We had such large numbers that day. We were so loud, roaring through the streets that day. That was the most empowered I think I've ever felt. I felt our movement growing. I could sense it in the air. I felt that vibe. And from there, our movement just kept growing even more. But that day when we were leading the chants and we had how many people behind us? About 500. 500 people. That was just the largest crowd I've ever seen at a climate strike. So many youth, they they just seemed so into it. And I felt like our word was beginning to spread and the movement was seriously growing to have all those people skip school. That This wasn't an after school event, people were skipping school. And that just felt like such an, a, a memorable day. I definitely share that sentiment with, with you, Sammy. September 20th was memorable, but I, 
recently had a crazy experience that I think I can describe as the most amazing weekend of my life. I, I joined 150 other kids in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago on President's Day to demand climate action from our senators. And we stayed, I mean, this, this group of 150 kids, our accommodations were, to say the least, very humble. We stayed in sleeping bags in churches. and But when we woke up on that last day, on President's Day, and we took over the lobby of the Capitol building and dropped enormous banners, and I saw my very own friends put their freedom on the line in order to transmit this message of action that we needed, that gave me hope. Mm-hmm. I walked out of the Capitol seeing my friends getting arrested with tears in my eyes, but those were tears of joy because I knew that there was a wave of leadership coming from kids and young people and their allies ready to put their lives and their everything on the line in order to get change happening. In a sense, this is the start of the youth climate movement. Greta has really become a face of it. But just like she says herself, she is not the only face of it. And youth climate activism is driven by a very diverse set of people of different ages, different backgrounds all around the world. I love to hear that passion from Sammy. We're just asking for basic things from the government to stop climate change. And frankly, we're pissed about it. And it's really hard not to be pissed about it sometimes. And I get into fights with people about it all the time. But... There's also so many great inspirational guests that it's hard not to feel some real optimism, too. Totally. Here's Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir from CNN talking about what woke him up to the climate emergency. Well, for me, it was, I think, a lot of moments. And because I had the great advantage of a parent who got it a generation before anybody else, Uh, my dad Uh, was sort of uh, born 100 years too late. He loved the outdoors. He was a cop in Milwaukee who walked away from the job because he wanted to live in the mountains. And every summer we would go out and, you know, either explore the rivers or the canyons of Utah and Colorado and go on these epic camping trips to the Boundary Waters. And he was kind of the smartest high school dropout I've ever met who Mm -hmm. was obsessed with Rachel Carson's work and you know, Edward Abbey and John Muir. And so we, he would, you know, t- teach me lessons about our natural world, but always say, be careful. Let's see how human beings are going to screw this up. And so he, he really informed the way I saw uh, the world. You know, he'd, you know, we'd look at the moon and he'd say, you know, there's 200 tons of trash up there. <laughs> there are bags of vomit uh, that the astronauts left behind and dozens of old spaceships that we just junked up there. Or we'd look in the ocean and he'd say, you know, it takes a thousand years for a Lego to dissolve in seawater. And so I always was infused with this awareness. And then as I became an international correspondent um, and got to actually go out into the world, it just became crystal clear how fast things that we take for granted are going away. And uh, I remember in 2007, when I was at ABC News for Earth Day, and this was after Al Gore had won uh, you know, all the prizes for An Inconvenient Truth and the IPCC was cranking up. And it feels like we had really turned a corner on the conversation. And, and for Earth Day in prime time, we had a, a correspondent live on every continent. I was underwater over the Great Barrier Reef. Diane Sawyer was anchoring in Times Square. We turned the lights out in Times Square as a symbolic thing. And then a year later, uh, Bear Stearns went down, the Great Recession hit. Uh, 
Barack Obama put sort of all his political eggs behind health care and the conversation drifted away. Hmm. Um, and then time since then, I was able to, when I got to CNN, come up with a show called The Wonder List. And it was all based on our children as the yardsticks in our life. And I have a 16-year-old daughter who, at the time we launched the show, was going to turn my age in the year 2050. So I, I said, I want to go around the world and figure out how many wild elephants will be left when she's my age. How many glaciers in the Alps? You know, who will be the last person to get baptized in the Jordan River, which is disappearing? And are they alive today? And using sort of the, the, the inspiration my dad taught me to think about the world is to go to the wonders of the world, places we can all agree on that are worth saving and see how human nature is chipping away at them at sort of alarming rates. And that sort of set me up as the storyteller of existential dread at CNN. And then uh, hmm. in recent years, uh, when I was out, you know, in Hurricane Irma, in Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, in the wildfires in California, it became obvious that context and understanding of this story is going to be more important than ever. And uh, for most of my career, I've sort of resisted being put in a pigeonhole with a beat. I like politics, but I just don't, I don't want to be a, just a straight politics reporter. But when they said we want to create climate as a beat, I leapt at the opportunity because I think it is the story of human history. And mm. it's not just about starving polar bears. It's about everything in our lives. You know, right now we live in, a, in sort of an, with an attitude that climate is just a menu item on a list of issues when you're polled about what you care about when you go to the polls. No, it's the whole restaurant and everything else on that menu from geopolitics to the economy to social justice uh, is all tied to the health of our climate. Agreed. And I've gone out and for that special was able to see just how dramatically things are already changing in so many communities. And because uh, our brains are just not wired to think in these long time scales, I don't know that enough people understand it yet, but I think eventually they're going to be forced to understand it. And I think we're all going to be climate reporters eventually. You heard it here first from Bill Weir. We will all be climate reporters eventually. And me especially, I'm actually already my family's climate reporter, and I hope he's right. Well, the next bit of climate reporting is very near and dear to my heart as a Miamian who grew up with septic tanks. Oh my god, I don't know. <laughs> is this the Daniela Levinkava interview? Yeah, exactly. Miami's amazing mayor. I led into this with a few very personal stories about septic tanks making a complete mess at our home. And Mayor Livinkava went on to describe dolphins leaping in Biscayne Bay and why Governor DeSantis has supported Everglades restoration. Let's go ahead and have a listen. My mother is Septic Tank's biggest nemesis. So I was telling her that I was interviewing you and she like saw some of the scripts. She's like, yes, I hate Septic. I'm happy we're talking about this. So like, and Septic is only going to get worse because as sea level continues to rise, it's going to be getting worse. And our state politicians are really choosing to do nothing to mitigate this issue. So do you have any important updates on this on this program? Where are the fundings coming from? And what are some of your other success stories? Well, thanks for that personal story <laughs> that clearly brings the point home. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for sure people take whatever is going on with their sewage uh, mm -hmm. for granted. And that kind of personal awareness changes 
mm-hmm. hearts and minds. So the Florida Keys got off of septic. They saw it coming. It was a huge undertaking, cost billions. They did it. Now we're the next up the peninsula and have to move forward. Mm-hmm. What's going to propel us to solve this problem is the bay. Mm-hmm. The bay has become very popular, mm-hmm. not only here where we know it's our lifeline and everything for our economy and recreation and our health, but the state has now invested in the bay with a statewide task force on the health of Biscayne Bay. A lot of money that came from Governor DeSantis Mm -hmm. and the legislature for the Bay. So they're not focused per se on the conversions, they're focused on the health of the Bay. So through that lens, uh, we can get get more done. Uh, We of course have a fertilizer ban during the rainy season now, Mm -hmm. that is important as well. And we did launch uh, Connect to Protect, Mm -hmm. the beginning of our conversion process in Little River, which is a very low lying area, that's an adaptation action area mm-hmm. where the residents are informed and engaged and recognize that something has to be done. When we launched that on the edge of the bay, there were dolphins leaping mm. behind me wow. in the bay, just to underscore. <laughs> <laughs> Magical moment. That's it was. So it was great. So we're looking at ways to not only bring in the the main lines mm-hmm. uh, and then the laterals that connect uh, to the houses, but from the property line into the house is very expensive, maybe a $5,000 ticket price. And so many, of course, can't afford that. We have a program called SELF, S-E-L-F, that is very low cost uh, loan, like 1% uh, that we're uh, staffing up. To, to help people and it's not collateralized to their home. So it, it's it's really easy access mm-hmm. and uh, looking for other grants to help bring down the costs. You know, we have a, 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 a listening audience for House on Fire that's beyond Florida, that's national and international. So I just want to frame for those listening that Miami-Dade County and our Miami-Dade County Mayor, Daniela Levine Carver, who we're speaking with today, is sort of a role model throughout the state because we're living in a state run by a governor who really is funding adaptation, I think, really mm-hmm. well. But but putting in brakes on mitigation mm-hmm. and preventing us from really addressing the cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. And we can't do one or the other. We have to do both. So from the net metering bill, the anti-net metering bill that just passed, we hope the governor will veto, but I don't know. How do you, setting your carbon targets and being so aggressive and wonderful with your vision for Miami-Dade County, how do you get these two dichotomous things together in your head? How do you move the needle? So just like the example I gave you about septic to sewer in the Mm -hmm. Bay, I think we always have to look for what is the common ground. Uh, There's actually a great quote from Reverend Jim Wallace of Sojourners, which is to get to common ground, you have to go to higher ground. So where can we agree? This governor, for example, is very anti-sugar. There's a whole history of why he's anti-sugar, but because of that understanding, he has pushed for Everglades restoration. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to find those commonalities and then push through. Um, Now we have a chief resilience officer for the state, Mm -hmm. uh, a very good guy who was working for Senator Rubio before, Mm Westbrook. He really gets it. 
And I think Wes will be a very valuable partner in educating and moving the needle on the kind of funding that we need. And um, so I'm hopeful. But these things don't happen quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to really press forward. We know that there is the urgency of now. Uh, but we we definitely have to run with the opportunities we have and then just keep pushing further. Absolutely love it when your mayor is talking about the urgency of now when it comes to climate change. Love me some Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. And it is so important to have a mayor that not only says she cares about the climate emergency, actually does stuff about this. Back last year, this group of developers were trying to expand the urban development boundary line here in Miami-Dade County. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's essentially an invisible line that tells developers not to build beyond this area or else it will cause environmental devastation. Unfortunately, the Board of County Commissioners chose the developers over the people of Miami-Dade County and they voted in favor of this. But despite potential political backlash, Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava vetoed this anyway, and it was truly one of the most badass things I have ever seen her do. Unfortunately, the commissioner still ended up overriding her veto, but I'll forever remember what she did for Miami-Dade County. And it's so important to have strong, empowering women in the climate crisis. It was so bold. I mean, shout out to her. If she's listening, you are truly so inspirational and badass. I mean... You know, besides that, we've had so many amazing women on our show, starting with, you know, Miss Katrina over here and myself, (laughs) but not being biased, you know. But seriously, here's another amazing woman, Varshini Prakash, executive director of the Sunrise Movement, telling us how she got into the world of climate activism. What woke you up to the climate emergency and how did your organizing journey begin? Yeah. I mean, I would say it started like the long before I understood the destruction and the the violence that was happening because of environmental damage and, and racism and, and climate change. Like this was a story about falling in love with the world around me. Um, when I was a kid and um, I, I just loved everything about the world around me. I loved the trees. I loved to spend time outside, like mucking around, making mud pies. Like I loved animals. I loved the soil. I loved everything that was the earth and, and, and the environment around me. Um, and I have like so many memories of me and my best friend, just like, you know, pottering around in, in, in the woods behind my house and thinking it was just this magical, magical place. And as I got older, I, I, I started realizing for school, but, you know, also stories that I was hearing about communities that look like me half a world away from where my family's from in, in, in India that were just suffering so much damage, like tens of thousands of farmers committing suicide because they just couldn't keep up. Um, they mm-hmm. couldn't sustain their lives. Like seeing, um, you know, piles of trash, like twice the size of Texas sitting in the Pacific Ocean, like the death toll from Hurricane Katrina and how it affected Black folks. Like, the monsoon seasons that were getting worse and worse and ultimately ended up, you know, killing thousands and thousands of people in um, communities that my parents had grown up in. And so I think when I got older, I was like, what kind of world do we live in where we have so much, we have so much abundance and yet like billions of people are going hungry or don't have access to basic needs. Like 
we are, you know, we're privatizing our water. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're polluting our air. The, like the, the, the very basic necessities that every human needs to survive, we are not allowing and largely because of greed. And so that was like what I think catalyzed my desire to get involved. And I didn't really know what to do for a long time. Like I was like, you know, joining recycling clubs and like bothering my mom to turn off the lights in her in our house all the time. And like doing all of those things. And I think it wasn't until I got to college and sort of tripped and fell into a, a fossil fuel divestment campaign on campus that I realized like this isn't about just making individual consumer choices. This is about shifting an entire system away from from extraction and pollution and competition and hurting each other to that of one of, um, you know, equity and um, fairness and protection for all people. I love that moving away from extraction and pollution and towards fairness and protection for all people. Sounds like what we're trying to do here at Clio. It does. And also what our next guest is doing right now in Washington, D.C., That's right. He's Cuban-American, Florida-raised, and bear with me because he has a title that is as long (laughs) as it is impressive. Chief of Staff for the Office of Community Energy Programs for the U.S. Department of Energy. Do you need a breather after that? Ooh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Need to let it out, girl. Anyway, here's Chris Castro, a close friend of the show, telling us about how he rose to such a height in the environmental world. So... When did you realize that you were him? Because basically what you're saying is you're Hemi Neutron at this point. You are that boy. <laughs> like, I am so amazed at all of, all of the things that you've accomplished. And you're still so young. You're only in your 30s. And by, by your 20s already, you were a Florida climate powerhouse. It's inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, I need yeah. to know just a little more about how you gained or why you think you gained all this success at such a young age. And, and please give some advice to our younger listeners, because you have no idea the spark that you're about to get into some of these brains Mm -hmm. right now. Cause wow. Yeah. And another thing too, like there's a lot of ageism, right? Like in the professional workforce and you were doing things that people don't get to do until they're in their fifties. So like, how did you combat that as well? Yeah, th- these are really important questions um, as we start to nurture the next generation of of sustainability leaders yeah. and climate champions, right? Like this isn't going to be solved with just Chris Castro, Katrina and Gabby on, on the phone here, right? This is really about empowering a whole entire generation. And, you know, I think for me, I, I quickly realized that this work is very hard and <laughs> it's something that needs to be part of who you are and not necessarily what you do as a job. And, and very much when I look across my last 15 years of, of working in this space, you know, a big, you know, theme that I see across it is that I've, I've volunteered a lot of my time to getting the experience and building the networks that have allowed me to get to these positions of power, so to speak. Well, I, for one, am glad that people like Chris are in positions of power. Fun fact, we actually had to cancel our original meeting with him due to Hurricane Ian. It's almost as if like climate change is intensifying our storms or something. And I honestly did not have fun with that fact because I was at home scared out of my mind. And you know it's bad when true Floridians are scared. Facts. (laughs) 
And if you check out the full episode, Chris dives deep into all the amazing opportunities coming our way under the IRA. This is the first year to tap into all of the funding being provided for the city, for residents, schools, and nonprofits. And if you visit the episode on our website, Chris provides links on some of the programs we can all benefit from. So let's get this money and put it to good use. People like Chris and our next guest, who's based right near us at Opportunity Miami. Here's Matt Hagman talking about solar energy and sustainable businesses in Miami. Wow we're getting this in motion. I want to know what your thoughts on how Miami can utilize this funding to create more climate solutions. Uh, do you have anything in mind for how you can tap into any of those funds to kind of create those opportunities you're kind of speaking of? Well, let's start with our built environment, right? I mean, so the, you know, as we think about, you know, contributors right now to, to uh, climate warming emissions, we start with how we get around, but then number two, so how we get around, Cars, buses, mm -hmm. all of that, right? Number two is our built environment, right? Buildings, all of that. You know, I was just at, uh, and we're going to have something coming out with Opportunity in Miami on this uh, company called Costex, mm -hmm. um, which is a Caterpillar uh, 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 parts reseller company okay. that is north of Miami International Airport. And they built a giant new facility their offices and this giant, giant warehouse. You guys have got to go see it. Okay. Sounds very cool. <laughs> and so what did they put on the roof? Solar panels. That's great. Not just a few, a lot of solar mm -hmm. panels. It's a big push, yeah. A big push. And what they actually said to me, they said it was the second biggest solar roof in Miami-Dade County. Of course, I asked, what's the first? Yeah, what's the first? And they said it's Ikea, which now I want to go visit Ikea. Love me, and, Ikea. Right? <laughs> Another reason to go. And they said... <laughs> Nine, on a daily basis, 90 to 100 percent of the energy in this giant office and this huge, huge warehouse, all through solar. Right? You know, I'm not surprised that IKEA has the solar panels because I really feel like Nordic countries have really been like, leading it. the way to like I was just in Iceland and Iceland is 100 percent renewable energy. That right. And so here's so next time you guys um you know, when you're coming back from your yeah. next trip, your next <laughs> trip off to cool places like Iceland, if you're coming in, flying in from the West, you know, you come in over the Everglades and, and you know, as you're coming over, you know, all these buildings like in Doral and stuff, I know a thought I always have is I'm looking down at all of these flat roofs. Mm-hmm. There's nothing on them. I know. We're not utilizing the power that we have, the free energy that we're given mm -hmm. daily here in the sunshine state. hundred <laughs> percent. And so, and my great hope is, is that, you know, we all will be on a, a flight flying in to MIA, Seattle, yeah. you know, 10 years from now. And hopefully the IRA would help the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act mm -hmm. would help, will help us do this. And we look down. And we see solar panels covering every roof. Because mm -hmm. right now, what we see, and I need to go visit Ikea, but I know Costex, <laughs> I saw with my own eyes. We were there. It's Costex just north of the airport. It is covered with solar panels. Yeah, we got to go right? check that out. Yeah. And so you got to go check that out. Mm -hmm. And But the dream is using this moment that we're in right now as a real spark where that reality that you know we'll see in the not-too-distant future where we see all of our buildings yeah. powered by renewables. But the thing is, like, 
it's possible for that to happen. Like the technology exists right now. And that's actually the reason that I actually got into the climate fight. I read a book called Climate of Hope. I don't know if you've read it before. I haven't, but I will. Yeah, it's by um, it's by Michael Bloomberg and Carl Pope. The, The story behind it is really funny. I read it for an emergency management class and I just chose the book because I knew who Michael Bloomberg was. I had like no interest in climate change whatsoever. So I read. Wait, you didn't? Yeah, I didn't. I had no interest. Like I was just in an emergency management class in college and I had to read the book for an assignment and I chose it. So, but this is I like, want to hear about your yeah. climate journey. <laughs> so, so, this, this is, is great. So this is my story. So yeah. we're getting into it. So I'm reading this book and we're talking and it talks about the impacts of climate and everything. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so scary. And then it goes into the solutions and all of the doable solutions that exist. And I'm like, wait, so we're in a climate crisis, but the solutions exist and we're not doing anything about it. Like just how you were talking about, like we could use solar roofs, like all these like different innovative ways. And we weren't doing anything about it. It got me so mad. And then I just like totally changed all of my career paths. And I just dedicated it to making sure that the solutions were being advocated for. I and love more than that just story. the solutions, yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. Like the solutions are there, like you said. Like for me, it was more just about equity. Like yes. I feel like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're here in Miami. We're a Miami-based, you know, uh, podcast. But I'm Nicaraguan. I lived in Nicaragua for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And you go outside, you're inside. It's the same temperature, and it is hot. It is getting mm-hmm. hotter and hotter for everybody around the world. Like us as Americans, we're fortunate to have our AC units. Um, some, some, because not everybody has that as well. Not everyone. Yeah. No. But, you know, you start really thinking about, man, we really have the opportunity to create, not even create, just implement the the solutions that are already there and we're not doing it. And it's not mm-hmm. fair to everyone else who really really has to go and work harder for their next meal for their families you know so that was my biggest thing when it came down to it because like yeah great we have the solutions but we got to give that education to others as well we got to make sure that Mm -hmm. they're making better informed decisions because it's there they just Mm -hmm. need the information 100 percent, 100 percent, and i think that's one of our big challenges right now i mean as you said in so many ways the technology is there i mean to go back to the costex example you know we're talking this this dream of having you know flat roofs across West Dade covered with solar panels. Well, we know it can be done because we have an a, an example right mm-hmm. now in front of us. You know, sure, are there some areas where there needs more work? I mean, think about like, uh, you know, battery power, for example, or or carbon capture technology mm-hmm. is something there's a lot that, you know, all of that's, but there's other, other areas it's right here, right now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how can we work to, to and utilize we, it? I think like the best way to do that is also focus more on accessibility. I feel like there's mm-hmm. all these like justice impacts that are preventing people from getting solar panels on their house. For example, yes, you do get the money back, but you have to do that big down payment. You can't be a renter if you have to, if you want solar panels. So I think like really changing the system that we currently have. And Get it together, it- America. Yeah. Get it together. <laughs> you know, another... Um, uh, I, I, and again, you know, mm-hmm. with Opportunity Miami, this is looking at things through a business standpoint. Yeah. So that's why I keep going back to yeah. sort of business examples. You know, there's a company right down the street from us where we are right now called Watsco mm-hmm. in Coconut Grove. And they are uh, an air conditioning uh, distributor. In fact, the biggest air conditioning distributor in the in North America, right? And what they, they have thrown themselves into transitioning to a net zero economy and reducing wow. climate. That's and great. And because air conditioning has really, with HFCs and everything, that's been the messy. Number, yes. <laughs> and the numbers are crazy. Like it's, you know, as I understand it, it's about a half of the energy going into your home goes to cooling it, mm-hmm. right? 
And so, you know, and right now there's just countless inefficient, you know, outdated air conditioning yeah, units out there. Oh my God. The and older buildings too. with oh no God. insulation. It's like, exactly. this energy bill, this is crazy. The more that we can, you know, the more that we can expedite this shift, which again goes back to the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. you know, the more that we can make a, a dent faster mm-hmm. in this issue. Um, and so, you know, so, but this is in front of us. In fact, there was interesting, there was a, a, a tweet from a, you know, the, the transition to a net zero economy is something that we're now seeing a lot of investment going into, mm-hmm. right? And so there is this, a, a, an investor in London of all places who's gone all in on climate tech. He's like, I'm going to invest in the companies that are building that net zero future. And, and he puts out a, uh, a tweet thread saying, there's a company in Miami that can do more to address climate change than any other. I'm thinking, what in the world? <laughs> And he said, it's Watsco. This wow. And he Shout out said, to Watsco. Yeah. And he <laughs> said that they had done, I think I'm quoting this correctly, mm-hmm. that they had done more in the past two years to mitigate the emission of CO2 than Tesla. That blew my mind. Shout out to Miami businesses getting stuff done. Leading the charge in sustainable business from Costex to Watsco. All right, on that very positive note, let's wrap up our best of House on Fire. greatest hits episode. (laughs) Well, I know it's hard to believe, but it only gets better here on House on Fire. Absolutely. Well, all right then, until next time, I am Glennis Navarrete. And I'm Katrina Irwin. And you've been listening to the House on Fire podcast from the Clio Institute. Recorded here in the sunny epicenter of climate change, Miami, Florida.